got your Bibles, flip over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. We're going to start there, jump off there. Just want to say, um, following up on last week, a lot of you guys joined us last Sunday night for our faith family gathering. I just want to say how incredibly encouraged I was by that time. If you weren't there, we had an opportunity to celebrate all that God's been doing over the last several months. We got to hear from our elders on what's been done, what is going to be done, how we're moving forward. And we got to also celebrate God's incredible provision for us financially over the last couple months as we step into this next year. If you weren't there on Sunday night, uh, our YouTube channel, you can find the video from that time if you want to just see and hear um, some of what was shared. But above all, as our staff gathered last week, we just sat in awe of what God has been doing and the expectation that seems to be felt on Sunday night and on Sunday morning, just around, hey, where God's leading us and what he has in store for that. So from that standpoint, I just want to say thank you as we step into this next, next study. Over the last couple of weeks, if you've been around, we've been talking about the foundation we want to build on, the foundation that we are building on. The foundation, not something, not a foundation we came up with, but when we look at Scripture, we go, hey, Jesus gave us pretty clear direction. He said, hey, Greatest commandment was love God and love others. And when he left, he said, hey, what I want you to do, what I want you to be about is making disciples. So we said, as a church, we want to build everything, be laser focused, being a church that loves God, loves others, and makes disciples. And that's not something for the church to do. That's something for us to do. It's something individually that we practice. It's something that we are. Who We're not just people who love others and love God. We are lovers of God and lovers of others that flows out of us. So it's not an obligation, a religious obligation, but it's part of who we are because that's who God is. And then last week we talked about making disciples, this idea of like, hey, it's not just for us. Like God wants, God came and got what God did, what Jesus accomplished. And then what he invited us to be a part of, was invited us to be a part of the work that he has been doing and is continuing to do. So as we wrap that up and we talked about, hey, what does God want next? What, how does God want us to spend our time on Sunday morning? What does he want us digging into? I feel like he's led us to a place that I'm really excited about, that we're really excited about. So if you go to Matthew 28, Matthew 28, and you might go, wait a second, we were just here last week. And you're right, we were here last week. And so what I, wanted, what I think is really cool is where God led us before we even got to last week was this. I want you to go to Matthew 28. And I want you to turn the page. Where are you? Mark. That's where we're going to be. And not just like for this week or next week. Our, our plan right now, and we'll see how God leads us, but our plan is to be in Mark, not until Easter, not until summer, but actually, and this Troy loves this, right? Until Christmas. So for the next, I think it ends up being like 40 some odd weeks. We're simply going to, hey, what does it look like to live and love like Jesus? What does it mean to love God, love others, make disciples? Let's just look at the life of Jesus. And so over the next several weeks, we're just going to go through this book, which I'm guessing, and we're going to give a little overview, a little um, deep dive on what Mark is and why it was written, all that in just a couple minutes. But I'm guessing if you had to pick of the four Gospels, which Gospel you know the least about or maybe jump to least frequently, in general, it's going to be Mark. Like there was not a commentary written on the book of Mark until the 6th century B.C. By and large, in the past, people looked at Mark and they said, hey, it's the shortest of all the Gospels. Like it includes the least amount of details. Why would you go there when you can read like Luke and Matthew, which has kind of everything that Mark has, just more? Well, I think there's a purpose. I know there's a purpose. And there's incredible beauty in this gospel that I hope over this year as a faith family, as we dig in to God's word together, I think we're going to be in awe. And I hope 
that when we get done, you're going to go, Mark, man, that is an absolutely earth-shattering, mind-altering revelation of who our Jesus is. So, you've heard the, uh, you've heard the, uh, you've heard the question, uh, who's on first? What, what, what comes to mind when you hear that question? Yeah. Abbott and Costello, right? Baseball and the whole rendition of who's on first because who is playing first and what is on second and why is playing left field. And you know the, the encounter, it's, 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 it's amazing and it's funny and it's, it's engaging and you look at that and you go, it's context really, really matters, doesn't it? And so when we get to Mark, man, the context of this gospel is gonna be so important as we jump into it and we see the beauty of what Mark has given us, what God has given us through Mark. And so I just want to do a quick overview of the context of Mark, as then we're going to jump into these first couple of verses together this morning. But the context of Mark begins with who wrote it. The author of Mark isn't named in the book of Mark. Never is it, does it say who wrote the book, but from the early Christian tradition, it was never questioned who wrote the book because it was understood that Mark wrote the book. Not just Mark, you'll see him referenced as John Mark. And this guy is not referenced in the book, but he's referenced throughout the New Testament. He's the son of Mary. We find in Acts 12, 12, when he says this, um, actually, Acts 12, 12, Peter gets released from prison by the angel and he goes to John Mark, the author of Mark's mom's house. This is when he realized, he being Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Mark is also known as a close friend of Peter. In 1 Peter 5, 13, Peter writes, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. He's a friend of Peter. He's a cousin of Barnabas, partner with Paul. Archicus, in Colossians 4, 10, it says, Archicus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning who you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And he's not just a friend of Peter a cousin of Barnabas, he's a partner in the gospel with Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 13, 5, it says, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now, you might go, Wait, why are we talking about John? Why are we talking about Mark? Why, did, why, why can't he just pick one name? Well, we're in the South, and so you of all people should know why we don't pick one name, right? But in those days, we have John Mark. John would have been his Jewish name. Mark would have been his Greek name. And a lot of people had both names. And that's why you're going to, you see him referenced as John Mark and John, who was also known as Mark, and then Mark, who was also known as John. He had two names, but it was clearly one person. Mark was very much at the heart of the gospel. He was very much at the heart of the early church as it exploded out of Jerusalem into the, the surrounding areas. But Mark was not perfect. Just like we saw last week when we looked at the Great Commission, we looked at the disciples and the fact that Jesus included and empowered and commissioned very imperfect, unworthy people to be custodians of his mission going forward. Mark is another picture. You might think he wrote a gospel. He must have had his stuff together, right? Well, no, he didn't. Because the gospel is full of people who don't have their stuff together, who point us to a God who puts the pieces back together for us. Check this out. In Acts 15, you're probably familiar, at the beginning of the church, there was a big split between Paul and Barnabas. And guess who was at the middle of that split? Mark. 
After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take them with, take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cecilia and strengthening the churches. Now, why do I point this out? Because Mark, like all of us, and like all of the disciples, and like everybody in the Bible, is not perfect. And Mark, of all people, made mistakes. But which is why I believe Mark's gospel is so clearly going to put in front of us the real Jesus in such a way that we can see, we can touch, we can experience. Because the story of Mark is not one of failure. The story of Mark is one of reconciliation. Because the Paul that didn't want Mark to join them because he didn't feel like he could trust Mark, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, 11, he references this same Mark. And what does he say? Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. I don't know about you, but there's something about this that struck so deeply this week. The fact that Mark is somebody who messed up, but Mark is somebody who has been reconciled. And it's the messed up people that we find once again, again and again, central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the writer of this gospel, I believe, is someone that you and I can deeply relate to if, if you have ever made a mistake. So it's written by John Mark, and the question would be, when is it written? And as with a lot of these Gospels, there's some wide range of beliefs and understandings and why, when, and how it was written, but we believe probably in the early 60s A.D. Now, generally skipped, as I said early, because it's the shortest Gospel, Mark has 12 or 11,000 words. In comparison, Matthew has 18,000, Luke has 19,000. It's almost half the length of the other Gospels, which is why people gravitate to Luke and to Matthew because they give more information. And the reality is 97% of Mark's words have a parallel in Matthew and 88% have a parallel in Luke, which is why it's believed Mark was written first. Mark was the first Gospel written and was a basis for which Matthew and Luke used when writing their Gospels. So what we have in Mark is essentially cliff notes. It's the condensed version. It's it's what we really need to know, which is really important to understand why the Gospels were written. Do you know, pop quiz, I'll follow on Troy. What was the first book of the New Testament written? Some murmuring, anybody know? James, the book of James. Written by the brother of Jesus is believed to be the first book written in the New Testament. And you go, wait a second, why were the Gospels not written first? Well, the Gospels weren't written first because there's several books written before a Gospel of Mark is written. The Gospels weren't written first because guess what? In that culture, it was an oral society. 
They passed on things orally. And guess what? When you see throughout the New Testament, they constantly, or Paul's pointing to, they're all pointing to the fact that there were witnesses. People saw these things. So as the story of Jesus is passed around, as it's shared and talked about, guess what? There were people around them that could go, that's not true. That didn't happen. Like, no, Jesus didn't do that. No, he didn't say that. This is exact, or vice versa, to validate. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly the, what Jesus said. And so what happened is the reason the gospels are written later because as you get later, the gospel is spreading. The message of Jesus is spreading. And guess what? It's spreading to places where there aren't eyewitnesses. So how likely is it in those contexts are things being exaggerated or things being shared or things being added or taken away? And you got Mark sitting here going, no, we need the truth. We need the real story of Jesus. So I'm going to write it down. Gospels were written to make sure we knew exactly what happened. We knew exactly what Jesus said so that we could not, years down the line, get to a place where the Jesus we're following is different than the Jesus who came. You see, the written in the 60s, a basis for the first gospel, what we're going to find here is Mark is incredibly condensed. And I referenced earlier that he was a friend of Peter. It's believed that Peter is one of his main sources for writing this gospel, which is why this gospel is going to move so quick. You, whenever we interact with Peter, right, you go, if there was ever a poster child for ADD, we think it was probably Peter, right? Well, this gospel is going to make us dizzy as we move so quickly from one story to another story to another story. The question, if it was written by John Mark, it was written in the early 60s AD, who was the audience? The audience were, was, was Rome, were Christians and unbelievers in the city of Rome. We understand this, we believe this, because what we see is Mark, while being Jewish, goes to great lengths in his gospel to explain some Jewish customs, some Jewish traditions. He translates Aramaic terms for his audience so they'll understand because they won't. And one of the greatest People, one of the focal points of the gospel will be at the end when a, not a Jewish person, but a Roman centurion confesses to the identity of Jesus. Now, written to Romans, it's important for us to understand in the early 60s AD, who is reading or hearing this message? It is a group of believers that are hiding and living underground. They're in the catacombs. Because they're living under the reign of Nero. Nero starts off good and then he goes off the rails. And then there is a massive fire in 64 AD that destroys over 70% of Rome. And people are not happy. And so if you know church history, Nero decides, I know who I'll blame. I'll blame Christians. And kicks off an incredibly strong and incredibly horrible persecution of Christians in that day. Just a couple examples of what Nero and how Nero treated Christians. He would take Christians. He dressed them in animal skins. And he let savage dogs attack them. He would take Christians living, dip them in tar and pitch, and then light them on fire to light his garden at night. He would take Christians. He would throw them into the arena to face their death by wild animals simply for the entertainment of the people. Knowing the audience here is huge because what you're going to find is you're going to find Jesus portrayed as somebody who was not separated from suffering, but someone who came to suffer. And as you picture this gospel, 
likely not being read, likely being shared. It takes about two hours to read through Mark, and it's believed that Mark is written as a story above all else. It's a story to engage. It's a story to pull people in. It's a story to encourage and challenge. Think about it. How many of you guys have watched a movie that's probably about two hours long? This was the current day movie. This story was written and this story was recited. This story was shared. This story was given to a people who were hiding, who were hurting, and but who were hoping in the message of this book. A couple themes that we're going to see throughout, and I hope over the next couple of weeks as we dive in, you'd make a habit of bringing your Bible so you can mark up what you're going to see. Because it's not just look at this passage and look at this passage. It's finding these themes and these patterns and this story that's stretching throughout this book. And two words you're going to see throughout, two ideas you're going to see throughout is the word immediately and the word authority. Immediately is going to be found 42 times throughout this book of 16 chapters. It's all over the place. It's this fast paced. It's Mark saying, Jesus was here and then he was here. Then he did this and then this happened. At the same time, we're going to see Jesus' authority and his power woven throughout this book. So three key questions that Mark asks. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to accomplish? And how will people respond to Jesus? Who is Jesus? What did he come to accomplish and how will people respond to him? We'll see it again and again and again. The first half of the book, 1 through 8.30, is going to answer that first question. And then the second question is going to be answered on the back half. In the first half, Mark, at the very beginning where we're going to start today, Mark 1.1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the first half is going to culminate with Jesus' exchange with his disciples, specifically Peter, when Peter, he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And then what's going to kick off is in the next section, the next half of the gospel, is going to be Jesus moving towards Jerusalem where he's ultimately going to die. And at the end of the gospel, the last declaration to Jesus' identity, as I said earlier, is given by the centurion in 1539. And Jesus, after Jesus dies, the centurion stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Question, who is Jesus? Mark wants us to see him and understand him as the son of God. The second half is going to answer the second question. What did he come to accomplish? In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark's gospel, because of the identity of Jesus, is going to flip upside down the expectation of what this long-awaited Messiah is going to be and what he is going to do. He takes the Messiah's reign and his kingdom and instead of being marked by political and physical triumph, we're going to find him suffering and seemingly defeated. Which is why you might have seen this for this series, our graphic is this. Because Mark wants us to see Jesus as the coming king, the promised king. But it's not just a king who's ruling and reigning with power and authority. It's a, a king who's coming to serve 
the crown is split. It's not just a king's crown. It's the crown of thorns that he will one day wear. And the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is an invitation for you and I to engage this message, to answer these questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to accomplish? And the most important question anybody at any time can ever answer is, how will you respond? And throughout Mark's gospel, we're going to see all these different people respond by rejecting him or embracing him. But what we will not see in Mark's gospel is the opportunity for anyone to simply go, huh, I'll think about that. Huh, I like the way he teaches. Or I like his miracles. Jesus left no option. You either reject him or you embrace him. And that, I believe, is an invitation for us over the next several weeks. What will we do not with the Jesus that we want him to be. But my challenge and my invitation for all of us, including me, is will we look at these words, will we study this book and go, who is Jesus for who he says that he is? Who does God want us to understand Jesus to be? What does God want us to see that he has accomplished? What does God want us to see about our need for him? And how will we respond? So I'm excited. Super excited to be jumping into this book, and I hope you will as well. We've oftentimes have shown some of the Bible Project videos. We're not going to show that this morning, but that's another opportunity for you to check that out this week. Maybe look that up and just give you an overview. We'll keep coming back to, hey, because each week we can't just look at a passage. We have to look at that passage in context of the bigger picture of how we're moving through this book. And my hope and my prayer is that we leave this book, one, with a greater love for God's word and a greater belief and who Jesus is, what he has done, and our right response to him. So this morning, we're going to jump in in verse 1, and we're going to look at four testimonies to the identity of Jesus. Four testimonies to the identity of Jesus. Mark begins at the beginning, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says beginning, some point to the beginning and say that Mark is actually tying the beginning of Jesus to the beginning of the world. The book whole Bible begins with Genesis, in the beginning God created. And he's saying in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus came. This moment, Jesus coming was just as significant, if not more significant than the beginning of the world. He doesn't skip, he doesn't spend any time about the coming of Jesus. He doesn't spend any time on the genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't spend any time on the birth of Jesus. He simply starts with Jesus. It's the beginning of a story. It's not the beginning and the end of a story. Because what he's putting in front of us is the story that you and I are now a part of. It's a story that's still unfolding. And it's the beginning of what? It's the beginning of the gospel at Christmas, we talked about the gospel. We talked about good news. We talked about an announcement of what has been done. Mark isn't saying this is an open-ended story that we're not sure how it's going to end. We know how it's going to end. We know what Jesus accomplished. There's no question about that. But how does the good news change your everyday life today? It's the good news of Jesus Christ, which is interesting. Today, we look at, hear the name Jesus Christ, and we go, just like John Mark, Jesus had two names. Jesus and Christ. But the reality is Jesus was his name. Christ was his identity. 
Christ was tied to Messiah. It was tied to the coming king. So to say Jesus Christ already up front, Mark is telling us exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. But it's not just the one we've been waiting for. He is the son of God. And he goes on. It's not Mark saying, don't just take my word for it. The prophets were telling us about this guy, telling us about the promised one. He goes on, verse 1, and then through verse 3, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is the only time Mark is going to reference the Old Testament. Now, compare that with Matthew and even Luke, where there's references all over the place. It makes sense. He's writing to Romans. They don't have any context for the Old Testament, so why would he point to the Old Testament? But he starts here saying, essentially pointing to us and reminding us that it has been, this did not come out of the blue. This was promised, this was foretold, and it is exactly the way God said it would happen. Maybe just a little different than we expected. He points to Isaiah. He then quotes Malachi, and then he comes back to Isaiah at the end, which we're going to see this pattern again and again in the book of Mark, where he sandwiches things. He's going to tell a story. He's going to do something else. He's going to come back to the story. He's going to move things, basically tying everything together, wanting you to see it's all one story. You see, he's quoting Malachi. He's pointing to, when we read this, we know exactly who he's talking about. Who is, he, who, who is Mark referencing? John the Baptist. Some of you looked ahead. The next section in your Bible. So that was very good of you. If the teacher's going to ask a question, right? At least look what the next section is because it might actually be there already. Trying to set you up for the win. He references Malachi and he then quotes a little bit of Malachi and then Isaiah. Look at the verse he quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We read the beginning of Mark and we go, oh yeah, he's talking about John the Baptist. We're going to get to John the Baptist in just a second. And guess what? He's talking about preparing the way for Jesus. But listen, this is what the people had. You know the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, we've talked about it here a lot. When you get to a passage in the Old Testament and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, what does that mean? It's Yahweh. It's the Hebrew name for the covenant-keeping God. It's God's name. It was so significant that you literally, they would write it with a pen and they would go throw away the pen, change their clothes and before they could come back and keep writing. There was so much reverence and awe for the name of God because of who he was. So the voice of the one in the wilderness is preparing the way for that God. But what Mark does at the beginning of his gospel is an earth shattering bombshell. Because what is he pointing to? He's saying, guess what? That God is Jesus. Wait a second. The God of the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, the one who gave us the Ten Commandments, the one we couldn't see, the one we couldn't touch, the one we couldn't behold. Yes, that God, when he references Isaiah, he's pointing to this passage, what he's saying. This is a passage about God coming. And I'm talking about this guy who has come. Who is this guy? This guy is God himself. Mark is not wasting any time declaring the identity of God. He says, 
I see him as Jesus, the Christ, the one that God has promised. And guess what? The one that God has promised is actually not an agent of him. It is him. And he goes on. He's going to point to John the Baptist in verse 4 through 8. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him or were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Israel has not seen a prophet of the Lord in over 400 years. And John comes on the scene. And he's looking and sounding and seeming a lot like Elijah, who many thought Malachi predicted would come before the Messiah came. And so there's a lot of excitement around this John the Baptist who's out in the wilderness. And he's preparing a way. In ancient times, before a king visited a part of his realm or region, a messenger was sent before him to prepare the way. This included preparing roads and preparing the people. Now, we don't have a whole lot of kings visiting our area these days, but how many of you guys have ever had dinner guests? What happens in your house prior to people coming over for dinner? If it's anything like our house, like there's a lot of work that goes on in preparing, right? So what you, when you come into our house, the house you encounter is not the house that was here like a couple hours ago, right? I mean, there are closets that are stuffed full. There are things that are put away. Things have been cleaned that haven't been cleaned in a while. Like we are ready for you to come and we're going to prepare the house for you to come. When a king came in those days, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of preparation. It was a lot of, of working and preparing so that the king could come smoothly and be welcomed and the people were ready. John is preparing the way, not for a king who's going to sit on the throne, but for a king who's going to serve. He goes, this king, this king, I won't even be worthy of untying his sandals which in those days, not even a Jewish slave would be willing or expected to do that type of task. John is saying the distance between me and the one coming is gonna be so great, so great that I can't even, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And while he's preparing the way for Jesus, pointing to who's coming, he's offering a baptism of repentance for the people. And you may be, in the past, I've heard the story of John the Baptist, and you go, what was the deal with the whole baptism, repentance, and the whole wilderness thing? Those people in those days would have been very familiar with, hey, I need to become clean in order to experience and come into the presence of God. In order for somebody to come into the temple, you would be required to wash your hands. If you were a Gentile trying to come into the temple, you would have to wash your whole body. But here's the difference between John's baptism and what they would have been accustomed to. The custom would have been for you to clean yourself. When they come out to see John, John is saying, you can't clean yourself. Therefore, you need me to baptize you. Now, was there significance in John's baptism, John being the one baptizing? No, but what John was pointing to, what John was preparing the people for is, guess what? There is one coming who can make you right. You can't make yourself right. 
It's not a matter of you washing your hands. It's not a matter of you washing your body. It's a matter of you being washed by someone else, which is why he says, I'm baptizing you with water, but there comes one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not something you can do yourself. That's not something you can make yourself right to receive. That's not something you can obtain. That's something that must be given for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is unlike anything else in any other world religions for one reason. And the reason is this. It has nothing to do with anything you and I can do to earn it. And so when Mark opens his gospel, he says, guess what? God, not like a raging of God, but God himself is now here. And John is, was reminding us, John was pointing to us, because John was a celebrity, right? There are all the people, all the people, the, the young, the old, the rich, the poor, the religious elite. Everyone was going out to John. So he's pointing to John here. He's going, remember John? Remember that celebrity? Remember his work? Yes, his work was foreshadowing the fact that Jesus was going to do something for us, make something possible for us that we could not do on our own. So Mark opens by saying, I see it. I'm pointing to it. Jesus' identity as the Messiah and as God himself. The prophets foretold it. And John the Baptist testified to it. And you get to verse 9. And Mark's going, and God flat out said it. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately. Remember we said immediately would be a theme? Circle it. You're gonna, this, this is first of 42 times you're going to find immediately in this book. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. What's interesting is we read Mark's gospel, you're going to fill in the gaps of what he doesn't say with everything that you know has been said because of what Matthew, Luke, or John has also said, right? But Mark doesn't spend any time giving a bunch of details here. He just says, look what happened. Jesus came, Jesus was baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, it was unlike any other baptism Jesus wasn't coming because he needed to repent. He had nothing to repent of. Jesus was coming to connect himself, to associate himself with the Jewish people that he was coming to save. And when he gets baptized, the heavens are literally ripped open. And you see God and you see the spirit of God descending on him like a dove for the first time. Mark's saying, don't miss it. Our God is three in one. Here you see the Trinity, you see the Father, you see the Son, and you see the Holy Spirit. And you hear God speak. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. We are invited to follow the example of Jesus. To be obedient and to live lives empowered by his Spirit. John points to the coming king being marked by the spirit. And here we see a validation of God's spirit on Jesus. You probably have picked up on how quickly things move in this gospel. And we're only through the first 11 verses. We see four testimonies to the identity of Jesus. Mark declaring, prophets testifying, John preparing, and God speaking. But what about you? 
Mark, the prophets, John the Baptist, and God testify to who Jesus is. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you see him as your king? Is he your savior? Or is he just a savior? I want to go back to verse 3 as we close and point this out to you that I believe is so huge. Isaiah points to preparing the way of the Lord. This term way is going to be used again. It's going to be used a lot in the second half of Jesus's go- or Mark's gospel. Because it's always going to be tied to the way of the cross. In Mark, the middle of Mark 8, Jesus is going to turn his attention to Jerusalem. And the second half of his gospel is going to slow down significantly. But everything is pointing to where he's headed. Everything is pointed to what is coming. Everything is pointing to what he is going to accomplish on the cross. You see, people prepare a way for earthly kings. But Jesus is no earthly king. And what we will see as we walk through this gospel is this king came to make a way for you and me. You see, when a king would come into a community, there would be work. And the work, we said, was significant. Think about this. A king, they wanted to make a way straight. So when it says make a way straight, we're like, well, just just go straight. No, in those days... You didn't have the technology. You didn't have the infrastructure for bridges and roads that back then. And so when you wanted to get from point A to point B, you just took the path of easiest resistance, least resistance, right? So if you came to a valley, you would just zigzag down the valley to get to the bottom. Or you got a road and there was like a big rock in front of it. You just went around the rock. But when a king was coming, the expectation would be that you would do anything and everything to clear the way. The king doesn't need to go around the rock. You need to move the rock so the king can come straight to you. The king doesn't need to go down the valley and up the valley. The king needs a bridge to go over the valley because you make it as easy as possible for the king to get to you. But guys, that's the exact opposite of our king. Jesus didn't come for you and I to make a way for him to get to us. He came to make a way for you and I to get to him. You see, a king sits on a throne and a throne means wherever you go there should be smooth roads and welcoming crowds but Jesus left his throne he left his throne because there was no way for you and I to get to him and the point of Mark's gospel is this king who is a king he makes no bones about it it's the greatest king that has ever been because this king is in fact God this king isn't asking us to make a way for him He came to make a way for you. And this is what I think is so crazy. When we talk about the identity of Jesus, when Jesus gets baptized, he comes out of the water as we have seen. God speaks and he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. There's something inside every single one of us that longs to hear those words. Do we not? We long to hear those words from people around us. We long to hear those words from our parents. We long to hear those words from people we work with. We long to hear those words, I'm pleased with you. But there's something hardwired in us by our creator, longing, desperately seeking to hear those words from our king. Here's the deal. 
Jesus came to make a way because of his identity that we've seen in the opening of Mark's gospel. He came to make a way for his identity as a son, for God to say, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. He has come to make a way for that to be your identity and my identity. John, in opening his gospel, can't get very far from this. Just 12 verses in, he says, But to all who have received him, who have believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then years later, in his letter, 1 John, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God of God. And so we are. The identity of Jesus makes a way for your identity and my identity to change. It is only because of the true identity of Jesus that it's possible for you and I to say, I am a son or a daughter of that king. And he is pleased with me. It's something God said to Jesus and it's something Jesus is saying to us. Not because of what we've done. We haven't pleased him through our actions. We've pleased him by simply trusting and relying in the finished work of Jesus. By walking the road, the road made possible by Jesus going to the cross that allows us to come into the very presence of God. Allows us to go, as we sang earlier, from prisoners to those who are free, from those who are dead to those who are alive. That is the message of Mark's gospel. That is the message of Jesus. That is the message that he wants his readers, his hearers to understand and believe with all that they are. Because guess what? After Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose, and he left. What came? God's spirit. In the same way, that God's spirit physically came down on Jesus through this dove saying, look, God's spirit is resting Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in one. Guess what? Today, when you and I trust Jesus, we say yes to Jesus. We say, yes, I need that king in my life. What does God do? As his sons and daughters, he gives us the very same thing we see here. He gives us his spirit. Your spirit, God's spirit, is alive in you if you know Jesus. And so the invitation is simply this. As we journey through Mark, what would it look like to understand the identity of Jesus and connect his identity with your identity? I am a son. I am a daughter of the king. Mark is declaring that an all-powerful king has in fact come not to be served, but to become a suffering servant so that we could all be called sons and daughters of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and your word. God, this book, God, that just is, is just the story of Jesus, which if we're honest, sometimes we gloss over because we know that story or we think we know that story. So God, would you open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to receive what you have for us in this incredible gift that is the gospel of Mark. And God, would you allow us to stay anchored to the question of how will we respond to you? So God, this morning in this place, God, would you meet with each and every person that's hearing your word? God, would we come to grips with the reality of the question of who you are? And God, if there are people in this room that don't know you, haven't confessed you to be 
their Savior. God, I pray that that would happen right now. Because, God, we, don't, we can't make a way to you. You have made a way to us. And the only response is to say, yes, I need Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.